and given to poor people. Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief and as he had the money box he used to pilfer what was put into it. Jesus therefore said, Let her alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. A man became a monk and he joined the order of silence and entered a monastery. He could say only two words every ten years. So at the end of ten years, he spoke his first two words, food bad. At the end of the next ten years, he could speak again, and his two words were, bed hard. And at the end of the next ten years, he had been a monk for thirty years, he spoke his two words, I quit. And the abbot said, I'm not surprised because all you've done since you've been here is criticize and complain. <laughs> Nobody likes a critic and everybody feels the pain of criticism. Nobody is indifferent to it. But how we handle criticism can make or break us. I want to talk this morning on how to handle criticism and I do it under the awareness of the fact that this is easier to present than it is to practice. So what I'm going to say to you, I'm saying to myself and just let you listen in. I think there's a couple of issues that we need to establish or recall up front. The first is, is that everybody face the facts. Everybody gets hit by criticism. Can you remember how you felt the first time you discovered that somebody didn't like what you did or didn't like you? I entered the ministry with a kind of a fantasy that everybody liked preachers and nobody ever criticized them. I don't know where that came from. It may have come from my, the fact that my parents almost revered our pastor and would never ever say a word of criticism about him. And so I thought that preachers never got criticized. And when I entered the ministry and discovered that was just not true, that I was the brunt of criticism oftentimes, I thought I was, something was terribly wrong with me. I've come to realize that everybody gets criticism. And the more successful you are, the more you become the brunt of unfair and unjust criticism. And the more public you are, the more you are the target of the critic. I suppose the greatest love politician was the most criticized. His name was Abraham Lincoln. I want to read something that the Chicago Times wrote the day after he presented the Gettysburg Address. What now is considered one of the greatest speeches ever made. The Sun-Times wrote, The cheek of every American must tingle with shame as it reads the silly, slat, silly flat dishwater utterances of a man who has been pointed out to intelligent foreigners as President of the United States. And someone said of George Washington, the father of our country, 
The present occupant of the White House is little bit but a murderer. He is treacherous in private and fellowship, a hypocrite in public life, an imposter leader who abandoned all good principles or never had any. I tell you, if you're a person who makes things happen and causes changes, you're going to be criticized. And a person who takes criticism to heart will never do anything, really. Don't be frightened by the threat of criticism. If you're a Christian, you're going to be criticized. The world doesn't understand the value system of a disciple of Jesus Christ and will not entertain acceptance of such a one. If you're a Christian, you're going to be criticized. If you're a human being, you're going to be criticized. I heard about some sociologists who went to a little village in New England of 1,500 citizens and they interviewed the large, a large portion of that population in private and they found in private that everybody they interviewed admitted to criticizing their neighbor. Now that's no shock. What was amazing was that everybody in private who found out their neighbor had criticized them were outraged. The very best people are criticized. Who could ever criticize Jesus? Well, let me tell you, they lined up in mass to do it. The Sadducees criticized him because he talked about spiritual things and miracles and they denied both. The Pharisees criticized him because he didn't toe the company line and he didn't keep the law and the interpretations of the law. This man healed on the Sabbath. Can you believe that? This man associated with publicans and prostitutes and touched lepers with his hands. Can you imagine that? And even the people within his inner circle, that's what this text is about. Even the people in his inner circle criticized him. Let's face the facts. Everybody gets hit by criticism. Second, there are only two ways to respond to criticism positively or negatively. Now the rest of this sermon is involve, involves some tips on how to respond to criticism positively. Number one, you have to interpret is this criticism destructive or constructive criticism. Now somebody said with tongue in cheek, when I criticize you, that's constructive criticism. When you criticize me, that's destructive criticism. But the fact is that there is an element of constructive criticism. I have to look behind the criticism to the spirit and the motivation that's involved there. And I have to ask myself, is this is somebody who is what they're saying to help me and to build me up and to help me improve? Or are they just trying to hurt me, destroy me, or to tear me down? That's destructive criticism. And there is an issue involved in all destructive criticism. It's called cynicism. Now watch this. Cynicism is a spreading disease in this country. It underlines our politics. It's a part of the media, both spoken and written. It's what we hear in our universities. It's what we read in our newspapers. This cynicism, cynicism looks for the bad and finds it. It's always suspicious and negative and condemnatory. 
So what I have to do is, I have to determine what is the spirit of what this person is saying. Is it, is it in order to help me and to help me improve and to build me up? If that is so, then I need to listen to it. If it is in order to tear me down or to hurt me or to destroy me, I don't have time for it. There's a second thing we need to do with regard to how to respond positively. And that is to understand that we don't need to waste energy fighting destructive criticism. There's a higher calling than that for us. There's a greater mission in life for us than to go around fighting destructive criticism. You remember when Jesus and his disciples were on, the, on a journey and they were headed up to the Galilee. In those days, they didn't have motels to spend the night and so they had to rely on people inviting them into their homes. And Jesus sent his disciples into this little Samaritan village and you know the separation between the Jews and the Samaritans. They hated one another. He sent his disciples into this village to see if they would, somebody there would let them spend the night, stay the night with them. And they came back and they said, Jesus, these people don't like us. And they refused us admission. And they wanted to saddle up and ride into town with guns blazing. And they said to Jesus, why don't you call down fire from heaven and destroy them? He could have done it. He had the power of Elijah. You know what Jesus said? This is exactly what he said. He said, our purpose in this life is not to destroy. Our purpose is to save. In other words, he was saying, we've got a higher calling than that. We have a greater mission and enterprise than that. We're not here to, to fight destructive criticism, fire with fire. And so he just went on down the road. Number three, I need to ask myself, where is this criticism coming from? Is this critic a person I need to listen to? Do they have a character that I can respect, counsel that I can seek? What about this person who criticizes me? Is this a person I need to hear? Someone said, adverse criticism from a wise man is more to be desired than enthusiastic approval of a fool. Now, is this person criticizing me? Would he fit into that category? Now, that's what this text is about. Who's the critic in this text? His name is Judas Iscariot. Now, we've had 2,000 years to look back on that man's life. We know what he was. We know he was a betrayer and a thief. But John didn't know who he was. Perhaps he just spent a couple of years with him, but he discovered this is a guy you can't trust. This is a man you don't need to listen to. Judas Iscariot, what has he got to say to me that I need to hear? A cranky old grandfather laid down for his afternoon lamp. A mischievous grandson smeared Limburger cheese on his mustache. You know what that smells like. And the old granddad woke with a snort and said, This room stinks. And he went rushing out into the den and said, This whole house stinks. And he went out on the porch and shouted, The whole world stinks. The problem was not the world. The problem was that granddad stunk. Now the fact is that there are a lot of people going around with Limburger cheese on their upper lip. They don't need to be listened to. 
Did it confuse you when you read for the first time Jesus' words on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Well, of course they were not out of touch with reality. What Jesus was saying was, Father, this is my intercession. These folks really don't understand the whole issue involved here, the issues involved. And I want you to take that under consideration. Sometimes it helps to get inside a person's skin and try to understand where they're coming from and why they're doing what they're doing. Someone said that when, we're ki when we kill, we're most like the beast. When we judge, we're most like man. When we forgive, we're most like God. Number four, I have to look past the critic and see if there's a crowd. I heard about a preacher who preached a, 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 as a visiting preacher. It wasn't me now. Visiting as a visiting preacher, and after the sermon was over, a guy came up to him and said, that's the lousiest sermon I've ever heard in my life. That was a miserable performance. The guy was crushed. At noon, he went to eat with the host who had invited him there to preach, and he told about it. He said, you know, I, was, I had my feelings hurt. This guy came up after the service and said, that was a lousy sermon, a poor performance. And the host said, don't worry about him. He's not all here. All he does is just repeat what he hears everybody else say. Now, now if, if, if one person criticizes me, that's one thing. But if, you know, if I look into this and I find that there are 10 who are doing it, I need to take notice, look past the critic to see if there's a crowd. Number five. I need to see if I can find out in the criticism something that God wants to teach me. Now watch this carefully. It just may be that there is a need for correction. I mean, sometimes we do need to be corrected. I mean, how else could you grow if you didn't receive correction? In fact, the author of the book of Hebrews says is that God sometimes rebukes us because He loves us like a father. And he knows that we can be better and he wants us to, to achieve our potential. And so he corrects us because of his love for us. Proverbs 27, 5 says, Open rebuke is better than hidden love. And the wounds of a friend can be trusted. But the enemy multiplies kisses. It is true that your enemy may be your best friend because your enemy would point out some, by his criticism your blind spots. It just may be that God has some message for us in our criticism. I find out what germ of truth there is there, there for me to learn. What is God trying to teach me in all of this? And once I have answered those questions, then I go on and I do and I be, I become what God has meant for me to be and become. Beethoven received criticism. His critics wrote, if this man keeps turning out trash like this, our orchestras will become instrumental debating societies. You know what Beethoven did? He thought about that a while, and then he said, a few flybites will not disturb a spirited horse. And he went on doing what you and I enjoy. There are two more, give you a little hope. Pretty early as I glance at my watch. Two more clues, two more secrets, two more hints. Number six or whatever it is. I've decided, I decide 
and handling criticism that I'm more interested in pleasing God than I am in pleasing man. Now that is more, that's most difficult. I'm talking here now about something that is extremely painful. Because in the public sector, we all like to be accepted and respected and loved. And there might come times, young people, when pleasing God and pleasing others comes into conflict. The question is, am I going to desire the acceptance of man more than I desire to please God? Somewhere a Christian has to come to a conviction in his life that the most important thing is to please God. Now Jesus lived under a constant barrage of criticism. How do you suppose he endured that? I was reading in my quiet time this week, Luke said that there were dishonest people who followed him around trying to catch him in some era, some word. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Somebody walking around assuming these people to be friends and followers, they follow you around, breathe down your neck, look over your shoulders and try to catch you in a fault. How do you, how do you think Jesus endured such a, such a life? Well, I know the answer to that. He said, my desire, I do only that which pleases the Father. If I'm pleasing God, that's what matters. How do you think the Apostle Paul endured this withering criticism, both from those within the Jewish family and those outside the Jewish family? How did he endure that? He said, this is how I endure it. He who judges me is God. Now watch this. What is a life that's pleasing to God? Is it a life that is, of, that is devoid of criticism? Not so. If that were true, then Jesus and the Apostle Paul didn't please the Father. A life that pleases the Father is a life that is open to truth and applies that truth to life. I need to say that again so every young person who is making notes about something else can make this note. A life that is pleasing to God is not a life where there is total acceptance by your peers. It is a life that is open to the truth of God and applies that truth to daily practice. And this is how I deal with criticism. One said, I just made a decision a long time ago that I was going to please the Father and if it pleased others in doing it, so be it. If not, so be it. One last um, hint. When criticism comes, take the offensive. Herman Hickman was a football coach. He coached at Yale and, and uh, Army. And one day he said, uh, when, you're gonna, when you're getting run out of town, when you're being run out of town, get ahead of the of crowd and act like you're leading a parade. What he meant by that was, is that when, when, when people turn on you, take the offensive. This is what Peter said Jesus did. Watch. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you 
leaving you an example for you to leaving you an example to follow in his steps who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth he never did anything or said anything worthy of criticism and while being reviled he did not revile in return while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And in the Sermon on the Mount, this is the way he put it. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. What he was saying was this, is that you don't return evil for evil. You return good for evil. And you pour your blessing upon those who hurt you and turn against you. You take the offense. A couple of weeks ago, um, some of my friends and I, Margaret, visited the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. I never want to go back to that place. And we went to the Children's Memorial. The Children's Memorial is a building, a memorial, erected in memory of the children, the Jewish children who were exterminated by the, by the German Nazis. A million, 400,000 of them. And there's this huge statue outside this building of a woman holding a child in her hands, and, and her hands are huge. They're just, they're out of proportion to her body to symbolize this grasping of this child she holds to her breast. And her head is just one big round hole symbolizing the scream of a mother whose child has been destroyed by a German SS trooper. And this man was commissioned to build this in memorial to the Jew, Jewish children. And so he came up on this idea, every, every soul, every person is a light. And so he made on the inside of this with mirrors he took candles, lighted candles, and he made the walls and the ceiling such that it reflected about four candles into a million, 400,000 lights. A magnificent place. Little blinking lights all over the place. And there is this record, this tape that just moans. You walk inside in the dark and you have to hold a rail to walk around it. And there is this moan that never stops. And a voice, a male voice and a female voice alternately begin to, are, are, are naming the names and the ages and the places where these children were from. Now, if you went into the Children Memorial today and you heard a name called... It would be two years, and those, that record goes continuously, day and night. It would be two years before you would ever hear that name called again. Can you imagine that? Calling the name of a child that died. So many of them that were, were exterminated, that they kept talking for two years before it ever got back to us. a staggering thing. And our guide, a devout Jew, a very emotional, sensitive man and loved children. He, he was talking to us on the bus, very emotional, he said. There is no forgiveness 
for a man who would touch a child. And somebody in our group said, oh, God would, he, he, he very defiantly slammed his fist down and he snapped back. There is no forgiveness for a person who would touch a child. And I thought of Corey Ten Boom. Herself, a victim of Auschwitz, she went in with her sister. Her sister died. She survived. And she was making a speech one day, and at the end of that speech, a man came up to her and held out his hand and said, Forgiveness is wonderful, isn't it? And immediately she recognized him. He was an SS soldier who took his sister and her down to the delousing room where women were stripped naked and deloused. And this troop, trooper, this SS man, she recognized as one of those men who ogled naked women and fondled them. And when he reached out his hand to say, forgiveness is wonderful, she drew back. And these feelings of bitterness sprang up, flashed up for a moment. And then, because she knew the Lord, she held out her hand and said, yes, Forgiveness is wonderful. And I thought, the difference between Jacob Katz, our wonderful guide, a dear man, and Corey Tindum was Jesus. When that jetliner, U.S. Air jetliner, went down in Pennsylvania last summer, it exploded into a thousand pieces, millions of pieces and body parts were scattered everywhere. As those men went and went through the rubbish, the, the, the wreckage, they found two hands, a male hand and a female hand, both severed from the body, and those hands were clasped in death. And you let your imagination go wild for a moment. Can't you just see a young man and his wife in those seconds of terror just before they knew that death was there? They reached over and they took one another's hand because they lived and died together. You know what Jesus did when they abused him? He offered his hand. And they took those hands and they nailed them to a cross. But I tell you, those nail-scarred hands have become the symbol of how our Lord responded to those who hated him and have become the symbol of how you and I are to respond. Just give me your hand. I'm going to love you anyway. Will we pray together? Our Father, there is forgiveness for one who has touched us only through the grace and love of Almighty God. To you we turn and to you we pray. 
And Father, help us to love the unlovely, forgive the unforgivable, and thus be like Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. There might be a public response you would like to make today. Maybe out of the need of your own heart, out of the need of your own emotions and feelings. Maybe because you have determined that you want to join this fellowship and accept this discipline of a church body. Or maybe you need to come this morning realizing there is forgiveness for you. And our Lord has opened His arms to receive you extended them to the cross and offers them to you. All you need to do is confess your need and come to Him. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.